I want to thank you for listening today. If you have not subscribed to our podcast, please do so and feel free to rate and review us as well. If you live nearby and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come visit us here at Fellowship Bible Church in Jacksonville, Texas. You can connect with us by calling or texting CONNECT to 903-586-6520. If you would like to support the ministry here at Fellowship Bible Church, we would greatly appreciate that as well. To give one time or on a regular basis, you can text GIVE to 903 903- 586-6520. If you live a ways away, we hope you would find a good Bible-believing and preaching church in your area to join and serve in and support. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you have a great week. Colossians, the book that I'm going to bring the message from, it's appropriate that that I speak from Colossians, because Colossians is actually a pretty much a missionary book. You may not have seen it that way, but Paul starts the book. Paul starts the book, and I'm not able to get to that little note in my thing, so, and I can't get there here, because this is just the book of Psalms. So, we'll try, we'll try a different way. Colossians opens up in the very first section of the book, starting in chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, Paul says that the gospel has come to you in the same way. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, the guy that we just read about there. Our dear fellow servant probably planted the church, who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us about your love in the Spirit. So right here in this very first section of the book, Paul mentions that the gospel has taken root and is growing among the believers at Colossae, but it's also growing all over the world. So, this is a missionary book. So, it's appropriate that a missionary talk from a missionary book. Now, that seems appropriate, but you may be thinking, but that text we just read? Is that an appropriate text for a missionary sermon? Wasn't anything but a list of names. We'll see, huh? After Jesus rose from the dead, and just before he returned to rejoin his father, Jesus gave the church its mission. Take the gospel to the world. And we saw that that's what was happening in Colossians. The gospel that has taken root and is growing among you is growing all over the world. Take the gospel to the world. Make disciples. That's a big job. You guys been outside recently? The world's a big place. You may be asking, but (laughs) that's a huge undertaking. What role can I play 
in this great adventure? Does it require someone with special training and specialized skills? This group photo that you're looking at here is the 1986 class that graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary. Let's zoom in and see if you can recognize anyone. Recognize anyone? Yeah? Ron sees it. Yeah. I don't have a pointer, but kind of right there in the middle. Unbearded, young. Yeah, that's me 36 years ago. Some people in this class have gone on to establish huge ministries. Some people in this class have become very famous. I could mention two names right now, and you would go, oh my gosh, really? I'm not one of them. But there is something true of every single one of those people. Every single person. Everyone is normal, ordinary. And every single one has a unique gifting from God, and every single one plays a unique role in the advance of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Every single person is a unique mix of flesh and blood and bones and defects and errors and potential. Every person in this group, just like every person in this group, is living proof that the plan of God does not depend on special people. It depends on normal people. Real people. There's a clever cultural lie that has been being told for thousands of years. Here's the cultural lie that way too many people believe. Here's the cultural lie. <laughs> the clever cultural lie that God can only use someone who is super gifted. I'm telling you that photograph that you just looked at is not a group of people who are super gifted. I know them. I know me. And that's a lie. That God can only use someone who is super gifted. Now, we all know super gifted people. And God uses them, sure. But it's not true that God can only use super gifted people. Super gifted people like Billy Graham, for instance. 
someone who's super gifted in, in evangelism. That man's preached to more people and brought more people to Jesus Christ than you and I will ever speak to in our lives. Someone super gifted like Chuck Swindoll. I mean, my, my personal hero in terms of preaching and communication, in, in terms of writing, I mean, this Chuck Swindoll is the most amazing communicator and preacher. He is super gifted. Someone super gifted like John Maxwell, who is, is the guru of, of, of Christians in, in terms of leadership. Thank God for the gifts that God has given those men. But it's a lie that God can only use super gifted people like Billy Graham, Chuck Swindoll, and John Maxwell. Today, we're going to meet the players on Paul's team. Colossians 4, 7 to 18 may look like it's nothing more than a long list of names. With little or no interest and even less spiritual value. Come on, be honest. When you, when you come to genealogies in the Bible, and you come to lists of names, be honest. I mean, you got to be thinking, Jim, come on, man. I, I, I get it. You're a missionary. Colossians talks about the gospel taking root and growing in the whole world. It's a missionary book, but this list of names, missionary text? That's something you should preach on missions month? I'm telling you, for the Apostle Paul, this is more than a list of names. These names had faces. And each face had a story. And each face and each story meant something special to the Apostle in prison. I think the Holy Spirit and Paul, who both wrote this book, would, would want us to learn some things from this biblical passage. So my, what might he want us to learn? I, th I think the first thing is this. Very simple, very simple concept, and, and it relates to the big job, the mission of taking the gospel to the world. What's the first principle? Get in the game and play as a team. Get in the game and play as a team. There's two parts to that, obviously. Get in the game. Don't sit in the stands. There's stuff to be done. Get in the game. You play as a team. What's your role? What's your function? Get in the game and play as a team. 
Let's meet the players on Paul's team. The first name on the list, the first player, is Tychicus. Tychicus. Faithful servant. It's what Paul calls him. Faithful servant. Tychicus was a highly valued team member. He's given three designations in this text. And you can see it right there in your text. Tychicus, a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. Tychicus is a flesh and blood example that there are no little people and no little jobs. Tychicus reminds us of that Biblical principle that faithfulness in small things leads to responsibility in greater things. Because we can look at Tychicus in the other places that he's mentioned in Scripture, as well as here in Colossians, and see that he started off kind of with small responsibilities, but over time, those responsibilities grew. What do we know about him? Three things. We know that Tychicus was a letter carrier and encourager. That's what we see here in Colossians. What's his function? He's carrying the letter that Paul has sent with Tychicus and Onesimus. He's bringing you news. He's bringing you this letter. And he's a source of encouragement, both for me and he's going to encourage you guys when he brings you the news. So what's Tychicus Function, carry a letter and bring encouragement. Doesn't seem like much. Well, except if he hadn't fulfilled his duty, you wouldn't have the book of Colossians to read. He's a letter carrier and encourager here in Colossians chapter 4. You ever, there we go. Has that ever happened to you? Stuff works until it needs to work. <laughs> then it doesn't work. He's, he's a letter carrier and encourager here in, in Colossians chapter 4. But when we look a little further in, in time, we see that he's also a fill-in for Titus. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul says, As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come meet me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. So Paul says, you know what, when it's time for Titus to kind of to take a break, I'm going to send, Ar Ar uh, I'm going to send uh, Tychicus. He was faithful in his duty to carry the letter and to bring you encouragement. And now I'm going to send him to fill in for you, Titus. But more than that, later in 2 Timothy chapter 4, which is the last book that Paul wrote, at the end of his life, what does he say? 
Not only is he a letter carrier and encourager, a fill-in for Titus, but finally he's the minister in Ephesus. In chapter 4 and verse 12, he said, I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. He's going to be the guy there. I mean, do you see what's happening? He was faithful in small things, carry the letter, bring encouragement. Now when I need someone to kind of fill in over there, I'm sending Tychicus. And when I need someone to kind of go it and be the guy in Ephesus, guess what? This guy's tested, he's proven, I'm sending Tychicus. Tychicus carried a letter and brought encouragement. It may have not seemed like much, but Tychicus did his job. He got in the game. Then there's Onesimus. What's his story? A man, has he got a story? Onesimus, the runaway convert. We see that in verse 9. Onesimus, who's one of you? Onesimus was a local boy. He was from Colossae. Onesimus was a local boy with an ugly past. He was a native of Colossae. He's one of you, Paul says. He was a slave of Philemon, a believer in the city. And at some point, we don't know when, but Onesimus apparently got tired of the slave life. And he decided he would, he would make haste. In Spanish, he would go safe way. So he decided to run away. And he decided that he needs some money for the road, so I'll take a little of my master's money. So he stole from Philemon in order to run away. Stories told in the book of Philemon, by the way. Onesimus runs all the way to Rome, where Paul was in prison. Oops. And somehow the runaway slave met the imprisoned apostle. And guess what? Paul leads Onesimus to faith in Christ. And guess what? Paul tells Onesimus to go home. Imagine that. By law, Philemon has the right to kill Onesimus for running away. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Go home. Onesimus was a local boy. Everyone knew what he had done. How could he face the home folks? How could he go home? But Onesimus did go home. He went home a changed man. Radically new. Paul says that in the book of Philemon. Accept him 
not as a slave, but as a brother. He went home a changed man, radically new. And folks, only the gospel of Jesus Christ can so radically change a person and cause them to do the right thing when it's so difficult. It was not easy for him to go home. But he went home because it was the right thing to do. Onesimus was part of a team. A local boy with an ugly past. But Christ changed him. And he was a valuable member of the team. God changed him, and Paul recruited him. Then we've got Aristarchus, the devoted companion. This guy is interesting. Aristarchus. Aristarchus was a good man to have in a tight spot. Paul. I don't know if you've read the book of Acts or any of his letters. Paul kind of had a habit of getting in some tight spots. Aristarchus was a good man to have in a tight spot. And for Paul, Aristarchus always seemed to be there when things were tough. He was on the spot when things were grim. Aristarchus was not one of those fair-weathered friends. You, you know those fair-weathered friends that only show up when all the work's been already done? Those fair-weathered friends who are only around when the winds are calm and the seas are tranquil? Whenever Aristarchus is mentioned in the New Testament, he's always mentioned in the context of trouble. Whenever there was trouble, there was Aristarchus. He was there, for instance, just so you don't take my word for it, he was there at the Ephesian riot in Acts chapter 19 and verse 29. When there was this riot within the city, when Paul preached, Aristarchus was there. Acts 19.29 Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Man, when there was a riot, when there was an upheaval in the city, Aristarchus was right there. He was there for the Ephesian riots. He was there when Paul experienced shipwreck. In Acts 27.2 we boarded a ship from that city about to sail for ports along the coast of province of Asia and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. That just seems like, you know, a little mention here, but we've seen him here in, an Ephesian, in, in the riot in Ephesus. We see him in, in, in the moment of the shipwreck. Aristarchus was there with us. And finally here in Colossians, Aristarchus is there when Paul is in prison. You know, we're not told what Aristarchus did. We don't know what he did in these hard times. 
Maybe he was just there. But he was there when you needed him. Maybe all he did was bring the simple ministry and encouragement of presence. I've been a pastor long enough, and I've been in tough situations and crisis moments with families, people who are hurting and suffering, and I see well-intentioned Christians come around in those difficult, hard times. And for some reason, they think they always have to say something. And unfortunately, I, I said they were well-intentioned. Unfortunately, sometimes the words that come out of their mouths are some pretty non-comforting, stupid things. You read the book of Job? Remember the profound suffering that Job went through? He lost all of his possessions. He lost all of his family. And his three friends come to be with him. And the text says that for seven days they sat there with him and they were silent. Good job. My guess is that for those seven days of silence, they were a help and a comfort and encouragement to Job. But then they opened their mouths. And they beat him up with theology. What on the surface looks like good theology, but in the end of the book, check it out, chapter 42 and verse 7, God says, I am angry with the three of you because you have not spoken well of me or of my servant Job. What you said sounded theologically high, but it was wrong. Sometimes, folks, you can have more ministry in the life of someone just being there. Just hug them. Just say, I don't know what to say, but I'm here. That's better than saying something trivial, light, and stupid. Aristarchus, man. When things were tough, you could count on Aristarchus being somewhere close. Maybe you may not have the gift of words, but maybe you have the gift of presence. And you can just be there. Anyone in this room ever been comforted by someone's presence and nothing else? Raise your hand.
Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus. Here's a guy who's a little more contemporary, kind of getting off the biblical text for a second, but we'll get back there in a second. Anybody recognize Chuck Colson? Yeah, he was, the, he was the Watergate lawyer back in the 70s. A man who had a very public and very embarrassing failure. Hey, he went to prison. Should have. But here's a man who met Christ in prison. And he was changed. Sound familiar? Just like Onesimus. Here's a man who picked up the pieces and finished strong. Here's another picture of Chuck Colson. That's his prison mug. There's a picture of all the Christian books he's written since he got out of prison. I was, I was sad when he died because I've read all those books. If the evangelical world has ever had a prophet to analyze culture and to speak truth into culture, it's Chuck Colson. But you know what Chuck Colson, as great as his story is, wasn't the first man to fail and get up after he failed and go on to be useful for the Savior. Wasn't the first one. The Bible is full of stories like that. And, and, and the next guy in the list, in, in Paul's list in Colossians 4, is a guy like Chuck Colson. It's Mark, the recovered friend. I mean, this is an amazing story. Mark was a man who got a second chance. We see there in, in verse 10 that Paul says, welcome him. It's the cousin of Barnabas and we can't help but think back to Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 15 and what happened with Paul and Mark and Barnabas, and I'm going to get into that here in just a minute. But Mark was the man who fell hard and got back up. He didn't stay down. He made a mistake. He wiped out. But he refused to let that define his life. What do we know about Mark? Well, first, in Acts chapter 13, Mark accompanied Paul. We can read about it in Acts chapter 13 when they were there and in the early church and said, you know, set apart for me some men who are going to take the gospel out beyond the borders of Jerusalem and Judea, and Paul says, you know, that's, that's going to be me, and so he, he, he grabs Barnabas, 
And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, remember the story? Mark sets out on the trip with them in, in the first part of Acts chapter 13. We don't get too far. Acts chapter 13 and verse 13, what happened? He abandoned Paul. We're not told why. He accompanied him and he abandoned him in Acts 13. Again, picked up in Acts chapter 15. You remember when they went out for the second time? You remember what happened? You remember the story. Barnabas wants to take Mark. And Acts chapter 15, verse 38 says, Paul didn't want to take Mark. Why? Because the dude choked. He didn't finish. He went home to mama. This was hard. He deserted them, the text says. He accompanied Paul, he abandoned Paul, but it's not the end of the story. Thank God it's not the end of the story. Barnabas took Mark, and Paul took Silas. And somehow along the way, we're not told everything, but somehow along the way, Barnabas encouraged Mark. And he brought him back around. So that the next step in the story, he accompanied Paul, he abandoned Paul, but He's restored to Paul in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10. Here in this text that we're reading. He's restored. Paul says, welcome him. Years ago, I didn't want to take him. Now I'm telling you, welcome him. He's been restored to me. But that's not the end of the story. He accompanied Paul, he abandoned Paul, he was restored to Paul. But in 2 Timothy, the last book that Paul wrote at the end of his life, what does he say? Send Mark because he is useful to me. He's useful. Mark reminds us that mistakes are going to happen. Failures will take place. But one false step is not necessarily fatal. God forgives and God gives second chances. along with Abraham, serial liar, along with Moses, murderer, along with David, oh my gosh, murderer, adulterer, conspirator, 
along with Peter. Who denied Jesus three times. But in John chapter 21, Jesus pulls him aside and said, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. He restored him. And Peter was the one who preached on the day of Pentecost. And Peter wrote two books in the Bible. And Peter was the one who discipled Mark. Are you glad God forgives and gives second chances? Then there's Jesus' justice. The unsung hero. Jesus was his Jewish name. Justice was his Roman name. We really don't know anything much else about him except that he was a source of comfort. He was one of those guys behind the scenes. He didn't get the limelight. He was willing to stand in the shadows and go unnoticed. He didn't need to be up front. He let someone else get all the notice and the notoriety. Just an unsung hero, but he was a source of consolation and a vital member of the team. Get in the game. Plays a team. Are you seeing yourself somewhere in this list? Is anything resonating with you that, oh yeah, that's, that's me. And now we come to probably the, the MVP on the team. The most valuable player. Epaphras. The prayer warrior. You notice how much ink he gets compared to the, to the others? Paul says a whole lot more about him than he does others. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you so that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea, and Hierapolis. The guy who prays. And I think there are some good reasons to say that he's the MVP. There's a literary device that's used in the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. It's called a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary device we know nothing about because we just, if, if people do it in, in English literature, I have no idea that they do it, but it was done in the Bible in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, a chiasm. So let me explain to you what a chiasm is. It comes from the Greek letter key, which is equivalent to our letter X. So we've got an X, right? So you've got the inverted part here of an X, kind of the 
angle like that, or since I'm looking at you, good, go this way. Well, here's how it works. In the passage that, and this is, they're found all over the place. You can't see them in, you can see them in English, but you have to know what you're looking for, because it's a Hebrew device. So unless you know what you're looking for, or a Greek device, unless you know what you're looking for, you're probably not going to see it. But they're there just as, I mean, it's like when you see it, you go, oh my gosh! So you take the passage and you, and, and you find it at the top here, at this point, some, something, and then down here there's something parallel, and then you take the next point coming in and, down, and, and the next point coming up, something parallel. So it all goes to a center and then goes back out. And at each point along the way, they're all parallel. But the emphasis is on the thing in the center. Does that, does that make sense? Everybody, some of you are, you know, look. Okay, enough of you are saying yes, that I'm going to go on. All right, and, and I'll show you, I mean, I have only seen chiasms when others have pointed them out, biblical scholars and stuff, and then I see it and I go, oh my God, that's awesome. This is the only one that I've ever discovered. Because I, I've preached this message several times, and, and, and when I had done it, I, I started thinking, I wonder, I wonder, I, I wonder if there might be a chiasm here. I wonder if Epaphras might be slapdab in the center, the emphasis, the point, the main thing. And you know what? I, I, I just... It was pretty simple. I just got out a piece of paper and I listed the first name and then this name and then that name and then that name and, 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 and here's what I found. Look at this. Look at that. Who's in the middle? He's right in the center. Personally, I don't think that's an accident. And for Epaphras, prayer was not a casual hobby. It wasn't an occasional activity. You can see that by the way his prayers are described. They're described three ways. His prayers were continual. His prayers were fervent. And his prayers were full of purpose. He's praying for you so that you might stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured, wrestling in prayer for you. And what was the content of his prayer? All right, I took a bit of an aside off my script a moment ago to talk about the importance of personal presence. I'm going to take another one that I hadn't planned on taking. I want you to look at what Epaphras prays for. What's the content of his prayer? That the Colossians would be spiritually mature. Now, let me just <laughs> retract for just a moment and, and ask, 
I'm guilty of this, so I'm not sitting here going, but I I don't know, I've just observed, what's the content of most of our prayers when we pray for one another? Oh God, please heal Aunt Thelma's right toe because she's uncomfortable right now. And God, poor Sam, you know, he, he's, he's really struggling with it. Triviality. Now does, does God care about Aunt Thelma's right toe? Sure. But might God be more concerned that we pray for one another? that spiritual maturity might take place in our lives? I don't know. I read in a book somewhere, maybe you read it too, that God uses sometimes pain and trials and difficulties to form the character of Christ in us. My beloved brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds, consider it pure joy. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces patience, and patience produces perseverance. And perseverance needs to lead to its final conclusion so that you might all be mature in Christ, not lacking anything. I don't know. It seems to me that what God's saying there seems pretty simple. When trials come, they have a good effect. It produces maturity, spiritual maturity in us. I just wonder sometimes, might God be sending Aunt Thelma's right toe pain or whatever that difficulty, that uncomfortable situation in someone's life is so that they might grow in maturity and trust and lean on God and become a little bit more trustful of Him? And I don't know, might, if that's true, might sometimes our prayers for Aunt Thelma be working against God's purposes if he's wanting to bring maturity into her life? I'm not saying don't pray for Aunt Thelma and her toe. What I am saying is I challenge you. Just, I mean, don't just take this, he's praying that you, be, that you be fully mature. Read every single one of Paul's prayers when he writes the letters to the churches. Read every single one of those prayers. And I challenge you to find anything where he's asking for someone's difficult to be, to be alleviated. What you will find in every single one is he's praying for their spiritual maturity. Why don't we do that? Why don't we do that? I don't know. Sorry. Every ministry team needs an Epaphras. Somebody just prays. 
I can think of two names, one you don't know, one, there are some of you who will know this name. The name you don't know is Kim Davis. She was our prayer leader in the church I pastored in Huntsville, Alabama. This woman was an absolute powerhouse. God reformed and revolutionized her life, and, and, and she just prayed, and she led a prayer ministry in our church. In the early days of this church, there was a, there was a man named Bill Umstead. Anybody remember Bill and Jill Umstead? He ran the Golden Corral. I don't even think the Golden Corral is here anymore, is it? Bill Umstead started a prayer ministry in this church. And it's all he did was pray and encourage others to pray. He came up with creative ways to facilitate prayer within the congregation. I don't know, what do you think? Is that important? To recognize our dependence on God for anything good to happen and maybe have somebody in the church go, you know, we ought to be praying. How can I do that? And maybe it's just in the shadows. Maybe it's just coming forward to say, you know what, Ron, Graham, we need to be a praying church. How can I help? I don't know, you might be the MVP. You might be... Then we got Luke, the talented specialist. You know, on, ev on every team, you're going to find one or a few individuals who've just got a lot of talent. Just people that you go, whoa, to have that guy's gifts. Whoa, to have that guy's capacity. And, and you know what's really refreshing? When you come across these really talented individuals and their team players, if they're not all about themselves. They, they give their gifts to God. And they simply and humbly use whatever God has given them. Luke was a man who gave his gifts to God. And he had some gifts. What was he? Luke was a doctor. He was a historian. And he was an author. He wrote Luke and Acts. Personally, I think, it's no big deal, but I think he wrote Hebrews. Now, if he wrote Luke and Acts and Hebrews, that's the biggest chunk in the New Testament of anybody. Even if he just wrote Luke and Acts, it's a pretty big chunk. This guy was a physician, he was a historian, he was an author, and he just said to God, Here, here's everything I got, here it is, all my gifts. I, I know a guy like that. Um, his name is Bill Cotrere. Dr. Bill Cotrere. Who delivered both of our children. Who had one of the most 
prominent pediatric practices. He's an OB-GYN in the city of Dallas. Huge practice. Made lots of money. He told me one time in the 80s that just his malpractice insurance was $300,000 a year. Can, can you imagine if he's paying $300,000 a year in malpractice insurance, how much money he's making? In the 80s. This guy was a stud doctor. You know what he did? He quit being a doctor. Because he loved the Bible and theology. So Dr. Cotrere went to Dallas Seminary and got a degree in theology. And let me tell you something. He was not making the same money. <laughs> I don't even have malpractice insurance. Then you know what he did? He graduated himself from seminary and went off to be a seminary professor and write books on medical ethics. I don't know, you think he's a little bit like Luke? Super, super gifted guy who just said to God, what I got, you got. I got a lot. Some of you have got a lot to offer. You have special gifts. Every single one of you. Some of you are Lukish, Petrarish, but every single one of you have been given gifts by God for the express purpose that they be used. God didn't give you gifts and capacities and abilities to do nothing with. Some of you have capacities to teach, to write, to lead, to disciple, to pray, to organize, to evangelize. To sing to play. Get in the game. Play as a team. Then we come to Nympha, the gracious hostess 
If Luke was a man who gave his gifts to God, Nympha was the woman who gave her home to God. To Nympha. And to the church that what? Meets in her house. Women have always played a huge role in the plan of God. And Nympha was a part, a huge part of the advance of the gospel in Colossae. She opened her home. It's probably the spouse of Philemon, the wife of Philemon. And they just opened their house. Said the church can meet here. There, there weren't any church buildings for another two to three hundred years, so churches met in homes. And Nympha showed hospitality. She was an opportunity provider. She opened her home and gave an opportunity for the gospel to be preached, an opportunity for the truth to be told, an opportunity for believers to be discipled just by opening her home. So there's the team. Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Jesus Justice, Luke, Mark. Each person radically different, each person unique, but they were all players in the game. Were you in the game? Don't be a spectator. Get in the game. Join the team. We need you. Get in the game and play as a team. But there's two names I'm sure you've noticed that we haven't hit yet, which leads us to our second main principle here. Get in the game and play as a team. But secondly, I think it's important that we all realize that we need to finish well. We need to finish well. The last two men remind us of the importance of bringing things to a good conclusion. You know, it's not the start of the race that really matters. Because you can come out of the you can come out of the gates like a bolt of lightning. And if you stumble and fall and don't hit the finish line, what good was that start? Ron mentioned that we just finished seven years. Actually, it turned out to be nine years because of the pandemic, but we finished nine years of training some pastors in Potosi, Nicaragua. Nine years of faithfulness to hang in there. I posted a picture of Cairo Farinius and myself receiving, um, now you can't see it, it's too small, but here's a picture that I posted to our EBOC communications group, all of our Latin American leaders who are part of our team, of Cairo and I receiving recognition from the pastors there, thanking us for nine years of service. One of our guys, Josue Brenes from Costa Rica, responded to the picture that I posted 
with a very short message, but it's meaningful. Here's what he says. Felicidades. No es fácil ser fieles tanto tiempo. Felicidades. No es fácil ser fieles tanto tiempo. Congratulations. It's not easy to be faithful for that long. We've got several maps that when I present the ministry of EBOC, I show several maps. One of them is all of the current locations that we have. And right now we're in 12 countries and we've got about 30 active locations. And if it's possible to be proud of that in a spiritual way, I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of what God's done with us. But there's another map that says completed locations. And right now with Potosi, there's 12 of them. And in October, there'll be 13. 13 locations where we've been able to complete Seven and a half years of training pastors. No es fácil. Ser fieles tanto tiempo. But if you don't finish, I know a ministry in Costa Rica that has never, that they've started in multiple places, and never finished. Never finished. Demas um, was a guy who didn't finish well. Sad story. He started well, but his life is a slow slide away from God and toward the world. We see that movement happen kind of progressively. He's um, a fellow worker here in Philemon chapter, or verse 24, he's a fellow worker. He's called a fellow worker in Philemon 24. Here in Colossians, eh, no comment. No comment at all. But remember 2 Timothy? The last book that Paul wrote, the end of the game, the end of the line, at the end. What do we read? He forsook Paul because he loved the world. Paul says, do your best to come to me quickly for Demas because he loved the world, has deserted me, and has gone to Thessalonica. 
That's a sad, tragic story. He didn't finish well. Demas reminds us that uh, you can't win with everyone. There are going to be disappointments. Team members are going to wipe out, join the other side. I've got a couple of faces, got a couple of names in mind. People that I've seen that I had all kinds of hope for and investment in that wiped out. Demas reminds us how easy it is to get caught in the slow slide away from God. Demas reminds us how bright the lights of the world are. Demas reminds us how the forbidden fruit of the flesh tastes really, really sweet. Demas reminds us how clever the traps of Satan are. I mean, can you imagine, we all think, man, if I could have worked with Paul, can you imagine working with Paul? How could anybody ever wipe out after working with Paul? Well, Demas worked with Paul for years, and he wiped out. Be careful. Be careful. I don't know who I'm talking to here. I... Some of your faces I recognize. I, I, some of you I don't. I, I have no idea who I'm talking to. Some, some of the faces that I recognize, I, I can still say, be careful. Don't be a Demas. And if you do wipe out, be a Mark. Then there's finally Archippus. The work in progress. <laughs> you notice what, he, what Paul tells Archippus in verse 17? Finish the work. Demas didn't finish his life well, and Paul concludes by reminding Archippus to finish his work. We don't know what that work was. We have no idea. But whatever it was, it needed to be brought from beginning to end, complete it, finish it. And, and Archippus reminds us that we're all works in progress. Remember what Philippians 1, 6 says? That being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We're all works in progress. And whatever you've begun for the kingdom, finish it and let God finish it in you. All right, I'm almost done. Sorry for my two. They were more than rabbit trails, weren't they? They were, they were part-time interstate highways. But There's a clever cultural lie out there. We've seen it. What is the clever cultural lie? That God can only use someone who's super gifted. That's a lie. That's not the truth. Unfortunately, too many people among God's people believe that lie. And because of that, they do nothing 
to serve the church or their Savior. God has gifted you. Serve Him. Use your gifts and talents, whatever they are. Do something. Edward Everett Hale, I think, said it as well as it can ever be said. Said it way better than I can say it. Here's what he said. I am only one. But still, I am one. I cannot do everything. But I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something I can do. I'm just one. You're just one. I can't do everything. I don't even try to do everything. Pastors can't do everything. You're one. You're one who is gifted. You can't do it all. But you can do what God's gifted you to do. Do it. After he was resurrected, and just before he returned to his father, Jesus gave the church its mission. Take the gospel to the world. Make disciples. Big job. Needs all of us. Get in the game. Finish well. And believe, not the clever cultural lie, but believe this solid biblical truth. God can use anyone who is faithful. Last time I checked, I'm anyone, and you are anyone too.